0: In
1: unsurpassed penetrating and perfect karma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million Kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's a lovely midsummer morning here, in Berkeley. The sun is out. So this morning, uh, tomorrow actually, we're going to begin a week of ceremonies uh, for dharma transmission, and. Uh, the priests who are receiving transmission are our good friends Carol Paul whose dharma name is Shiken Seigetsu, Clear Intention Serene Moon, and uh, Hanamira, uh, Kijin Seisho, Resolute Love Clear Illumination. And uh, they have been serving our sangha for many years uh, and really pouring their hearts into our practice and so uh, this will be uh, I'm gonna speak about what what I understand Dharma transmission to be at least in in this context but this is a uh, it's a recognition it's an entrustment uh, it's the confirmation of a trust that's already been long established. Although, if I look around, I don't see either of them here. <laughs> They're afraid to show their face today, perhaps. <laughs> up. Right, but you'll see them around. Uh, they'll be here uh, doing a lot of bowing and chanting and also working on transmission documents, and I'm going to say a little about all these things uh, as I go along, and also leave time for you to ask questions. Uh, It's a somewhat bottomless subject, uh, and uh, I want you to have a sense of what's going on. I was thinking back uh, 35 years that's right. Uh, 35 years ago uh, I did a practice period at Tasahara in the spring of 1988, and a lot of things happened that practice period for me. That was also where I met Lori, who was uh, the, the current uh, abbot, Tenshin Roshi's assistant. Uh, and one of the things that happened was I loved the monastic practice at Tassahara, and there was a whole cohort of people kind of my age who had just received uh, priest ordination from from Tenshin Roshi uh, pretty shortly before coming down to Tassahara for the practice period, and they were uh, a lot of them were became my pals, and actually they became lifelong friends. Uh, and one of the things that I saw was um, their commitment to the Dharma was, uh, I felt like my commitment to the Dharma was like theirs. And uh, I began to think about uh, whether I might want to become a priest, uh, and that was just, we had just had uh, the year before, the first pre- priest ordinations here in, in Berkeley, there were, there were three of them. Uh, one person left shortly after ordination, but uh, the two that I really looked to were Uh, my elder sisters, Fran Tribe and Maley Scott, Uh, and they were also examples to me. Uh, But I did see them as as elders, much more mature. The people that I encountered as priests, I felt, were more contemporary, perhaps. And then every day we chanted the Buddhas and ancestors. Uh, We chanted the the whole temple lineage, uh, which went from uh, the seven Buddhas before Buddha uh, to Suzuki Roshi, uh, and we would do that at service every day, and I—it called up for me a feeling. I wanted to be in that family, uh, which didn't mean that I wanted to reject my birth family it's just like this is where i wanted to pledge myself as a path for life and the other thing that went on in that practice period was uh, five people received dharma transmission Uh, and uh, one of them is actually sitting in this room right now uh Zen Yu, Paul Disco, was one of that group. Uh, so, I think Zeng Yu and Catherine Tanis and Ananda Dahlenberg, is that, is that right, Paul? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> they, they received transmission from uh, from Tension and Blanche Hartman and Norman Fisher received transmission from Sojin. And there was a lot of activity uh, Hoitssu Roshi was down to help with the ceremonies and uh, so was Kobincino Roshi. Uh, and this just gave a, a vitality to our practice period, even though we had no idea this was all done kind of uh, out of the sight of the ordinary uh, of the ordinary, garden-variety Zen students, but all those people were in the Zendo every day, and we knew that something was was churning along. And at that time, I will say, I had no... I felt that Dharma transmission was a very rarefied uh, uh, event in life, and it, I didn't... I had no notion of uh, Aspiring to that or anything, I didn't know it was something you could aspire to. I didn't know how it worked. So, um, but that was inspiring to me. And I'll come back. the The theme that I want to touch on is dharma transmission, but also the whole of our practice as family practice and uh, I'll come back to some of the things that scholars write about it, because um, particularly in the Zen tradition, uh, if you look at the rituals, and I'll tell you a little about them, uh, what you see is that they replicate relationships just close and extended family relationships uh, that to some degree may be rooted in uh, Confucian traditions of of East Asia. And so this question of family or lineage is very important. And I think what I would say is that I had an intuitive sense of this but as I study it more, and as uh, go through the various ordinations, I see more clearly how this is an expression of our practice, and it reinforces uh, my feeling about our sangha family, and uh, to be so, to feel so blessed, to have landed. In this pretty functional family. Pretty functional. Certainly more functional than my birth family was, um, and maybe a lot of you feel that. Uh, so um, I wanted to say something about the potential arc of practice that we have in our tradition. Um, when you feel really grounded and you feel at home in this practice, uh, you can ask your teacher uh, to receive lay ordination, zaikei tokudo, which really translates as uh, home-dwellers ordination. It is an ordination. Uh, and it's also in, in Japan uh, more, it's not unusual that uh, this is the ordination that you'd receive as part of your funeral. That you wouldn't necessarily have lay ordination and wear a rock like some people are wearing uh, or receive a Dharma name uh, in the course of your life. But in order to be reborn in the Buddha lands, uh, you're ordained at death. So we don't wait that long. <laughs> you should be reborn, you could be reborn in the Buddha land now. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's a ceremony that we have and we're going to our next lay ordination ceremony where people have sewn their uh, raksu and uh, studied the precepts. It's a precept ceremony. Uh, you receive the precept in a formal uh, way. They are given to you correctly from a teacher who has also received them in a formal way. So that's, that's one aspect of, of the practice. After a time, uh, you may be invited to be the head student for a practice period. Uh, and uh, that's perhaps when you begin you begin to give Dharma talks and you begin to have you've manifested some a potential to be able to guide people in the Dharma. Uh, and then uh, well actually I skipped a skip. Uh, before you schuzo, if you're a lay person, you so. Uh If you if you have taken the path of becoming a priest, which means being really, really committed to the kind of liturgical uh, and ministerial aspects of the practice, uh, you receive you would receive a priest ordination, novice priest ordination before you receive Uh, before you became the head student. Um, And I will say that, this is something Sojin talked about over and over again, and Suzuki Roshi talked about, where the distinction between lay and priest is not so clear. There are many people here who are lay people who practice with a a commitment and a focus and a uh, in, in service to the community in the way that one would think of as a priest practicing. So it's not so clear and that's something we can talk about another time. But uh, you... It's also a path that some people follow and some people take, stay with their their lay practice. And if they stay with their lay practice as they mature, they would uh, potentially receive what we call lay entrustment, uh, which is, a, or lay recognition. Uh, you could use either word, which is a, a ritual that an uh, exogen and a few others at San Francisco Zen Centers uh, created as a way of recognizing the depth and maturity of people We're, this is a very unusual situation that we have here to have you know, in fact look around the room there's so many people who have been practicing 15 20 25 years or more as lay people coming week by week day by day year by year Uh, and coming and doing this uh, challenging practice, sitting and facing the wall, facing themselves, and creating uh, harmonious relations. This is it's really wonderful. Whereas in in Asia, uh, there'll be often quite a distinction between ordained people and lay people. More of the lay lay responsibility, in a sense, was to take care of the ordained people. Well, it's not so much, actually, uh, but it's also the, lay, the, the ordained people's responsibility to take care of the lay people. And here, we all take care of each other. Uh, and so, lay entrustment is, um, it's the recognition and confirmation of a lay person's maturity and then we have dharma transmission for people who are on a priest path. And I think there was a lot of confusion and it's still, the, the meaning of dharma transmission is not so clear. Uh, you know, when early on in San Francisco Zen Center, uh, we had, you know, Suzuki Roshi was a teacher, and in his last days, uh, last period of his life, he gave Dharma transmission to Richard Baker. And frankly, I think that a lot of people saw that as a kind of uh, apotheosis You know, a transmission of enlightenment or a confirmation of somebody's enlightenment. And um, it was a long time before there were subsequent transitions in the, transmissions in the San Francisco Zen Center family. Whereas, and it takes a long time, so I was, um, let's see, I was ordained as a priest for more than 10 years before I received Dharma transmission. Uh, Hannah and Hannah and Carol have been ordained for a really long time. Uh, we see it as, as a recognition of maturity. Uh, whereas in Japan, it's, it's seen actually as a stage of your training, a necessary stage of your training. Uh, and, uh, So, young men and women would receive dharma transmission, and then they might go to do their ongo, their intensive uh, monastic practice, and then they would come back and take care of the temple, and they would mature in the process of uh, the monastic practice and in the process of taking care of the temple. Well, here, dharma transmission is, also a kind of confirmation of maturity. Uh, again, looking at the Japanese tradition, uh, we we think of Dharma transmission as a very we tend to think of it as a very high state or sort of an end state. But there's much more training beyond Dharma transmission, certainly in the formal Soto Zen tradition, and also as Uh, people know, for those who have lay entrustment and those who have dharma transmission, our training continues. So I had dharma transmission in uh, 1998 and then I continued to work and train with my teacher here until 2021. So that's another 23 years. And I'm still learning. I'm still a work in progress. And I think that's the way it was seen in, that's it, it, kind of resonant with what we see in the Japanese practice. So, um, Contrary to other traditions that have evolved in the West, uh, there's this mysterious term, "roshi," sheep. And some places that's, in Soto, that's basically, it's a term of respect. You know, it means kind of respected old person. Uh, who has a, who has some uh, role. So you would have, when I was at Zuyoji in Japan, we had the, the Tenzo Roshi and the Ino Roshi, so the, the priests who were in those positions that you referred to them formally as Roshi, which just means, you know, deeply respected old guy. Uh, and so it's not something that's appropriate for a young person, and it's not something, it's not a title that's appended to your name when you receive dharma transmission. You kind of have to grow into it. and It's not so important. And it also, when we think of that term, it sort of implies enlightenment, but In our tradition, we begin with enlightenment. So, you know, we have, we practice because we are already enlightened. And so, what is there to gain? So I want to talk a little about what the ceremonies are and then more about this family meaning, because I think this is this is really the heart of it. So um, what's going to happen in the next week is uh, a lot of bowing and chanting, a lot of honoring the ancestors, those that we know, those that we don't know. We have added uh, in, I'd say over the last decade, and the Process of introspection, uh, we honor the women ancestors as well as uh, the frankly constructed lineage of male ancestors that that's been handed down to us in the Soto tradition. So we have we have women ancestors, we have male man ans- male ancestors, and then also. Each of us has our own ancestors, all of them, in this process we are honoring. And uh, each of us can be doing and should be doing this every day, whether we do it in our hearts or we do it literally. Uh, But what you'll see in the course of, if you're around in this next week, you'll, uh, the trans, the the deshi, the disciples, are going to go around early morning before Zazen, and uh, do bows and make offerings to at a cycle of uh, of altars around the property, and then at a certain point they'll come in and do. A bow and an offering to uh, all the the official Soto lineage and the women ancestors. It's a it's a lot of bowing. We're not going to ask Hannah and uh, Carol Paul to uh, to do a full vow bow for each to each ancestor. But uh, when you're younger, as I was when I received drama transmission, that's that's what you do. In fact, um, usually this ceremony would extend over 21 days, uh, and when they started doing it, uh, uh, because they did it in a seven-day period, they would do those bows three times a day. It's a lot of bowing. It's a very, it's a physical, it's a very physical process. And in the course of that, they're also, people are doing their transmission documents. They're working with a brush and ink on a silk cloth and doing various um, very complex documents that also, each one of them lists all the ancestors. And uh, for those of us not used to working with brush and ink, that's not so easy. Uh, um, it's pretty challenging, but it also builds the intensity of the process. Uh, when I did transmission with Miley Scott in Tassahara in the, in the fall of uh, 98, it was really, really hot. Uh, and right across the pathway, from where we were, our little scriptorium, where we were writing, uh, they were putting roofs on the buildings. And that was, it was just like, you know, pounding in our heads. And if you kept the wind, you were to keep the windows closed. And then if you kept the windows to keep out some of the noise, but if you kept the windows closed, you were dripping with sweat. And it was just, it was a real physical ordeal. And it was quite wonderful. Uh, I was mean, like, you're sitting there dripping and it's like, okay, <laughs> I'm, just, uh, I'm just doing this. And uh, so the intensity of, this, of the practice is, is really wonderful. And it culminates in two ceremonies at the end of the week. Um, the first one, then they take place on successive nights. The uh, first one is called Denkai, which means Transmission of the Precepts, and it's where uh, the Hanshi, the teacher, formally confers the precepts to the student in such a way that they can then transmit it to others, uh, and it's a, it's a complex and beautiful ceremony. And then the following day, uh, the ceremony is called Dembo, which means transition, Transmission of the Dharma. Uh, and that gives you a place in the lineage. So on the documents, your name is at the bottom of the, of the document and then it goes back up to the head of the Buddha. So these ceremonies take place it's supposed to take place like at midnight, but we're too old. We're not going to wait up. That's like, you know, I've got a band, uh, a band that I'm in. is called the Midnight Ramblers, and we've come to the place where we think it should be the nine thirty Ramblers. <laughs> 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 you because <know? laughs> after that, <laughs> after that, we want to go to sleep. <laughs> but so we'll begin at dark. Uh, but it takes place in a red room, uh, which is traditionally what was done in China and done in Japan. And for this, Laurie and others have been working really hard to create uh, a new red room for our, for our temple, which we can use in the future. It's really beautiful. But what is that red room? It's a womb. What's happening one is born in this ceremony so it's a birth so this is what um something in it. there's an article by a uh, wonderful scholar uh william Botiford, uh on transmission and uh said zen is a powerful form of Buddhism because of Dharma transmission. It has ancestors whom it honors. It honors those ancestors by transmitting their legacy to proper descendants from generation to generation who will will maintain and carry on the family traditions. Uh, In Zen, this process of transmitting a family legacy is given structural form through the ritual Dharma transmission. Uh, And so this is, uh, the family model is easier, is recognized when East Asian languages are being used because the same terminology is used to describe both earthly and spiritual family traditions. So there's various uh, dimensions of the transmission. And I think I'm not going to go into all of these, but there's the ancestral dimension, which is kind of the replicate replication of family traditions. Uh, there's a linguistic dimension where the Dharma heirs receive new names, which reflect their connection to the to the family. Uh, Ritual dimensions where the rituals confirm family relationships. Uh, so as I said, we're bowing once a teacher is honored in rituals as are uh, the ancestral teachers going back uh, 2500 years. Uh, and their temp is a temporal dimension that long-term relationships, are honored and confirmed and continued. So this is a rebirth. And as I've been studying about this, I feel like it's, um, in preparation for this talk, I feel like the family dimension of this has really come home to me. It kind of crystallizes Why well, I'm so grateful to be here and to be with you in this family, and to be with you in a context where we're doing, we're expressing our enlightenment, our enlightened nature, at the same time as we're working on it, because we're, even the Buddha is only halfway there. So we're we're polishing each other and we have an opportunity to do things in a wholesome way that maybe we're not entirely, at least speaking for myself, we're not entirely wholesome in the context of the family that I grew up in we have an opportunity to work on those aspects of ourselves that are incomplete, work on those aspects aspects of ourselves that are wounded, and also to work with those aspects of ourselves that want to rejoice and celebrate and be awake and Feel the joy in life. You know, look out the windows and see. The sun is shining and the trees are green. And what a miracle that is that we are experiencing together. And that we're sitting in this beautiful room. And that every day we take care of this room. We polish the floors. We dust the cushions. We tend the altar. All in an effort to make this a place where we can feel our love and express our deepest heart's calling. And in that sense, to me, uh, as we deepen our relationship to this practice the transmission is wide and deep, and it's not confined to the color of a robe. So I think I'm going to stop there and uh, leave time for questions, comments that you might have. And I think Joe's going to pass the microphone. Is that correct? And also out there in Zoom land if you have any questions or comments. And if you have, if you have a comment, try to keep it brief. And if you have a question, uh, see if you can get to the question pretty directly without, uh, without having to articulate a long preface. And that would give us more of us a chance to talk. Thank you, Roshi. Excuse me. You mentioned the color of the robe. I was wondering if you could speak to any significance of the color of the brown robe versus saffron robes that we might see in other parts of the world. Yeah. um, When you have transmission, before you have transmission, you wear black robe in art, in, in Zen. And after, after that, the color of the robe changes to uh, basically a kind of blended color. Uh, so the saffron robe is a kind of blended color. Uh, in Japan, and also often in China, they'll wear something, uh, I think the, the color is called Mokoron, and it, it's kind of a yellowish, it's sort of like like the hipari that Joe is wearing, it's kind of a yellowish brown. Uh, and, uh, but brown is okay. I happen to look, I, I like this. Uh, and we have people make brown, it just because yellow or saffron is it's a little too, it's it's a little too bright for our color palette in here. you know. Brown fits pretty good. Uh, and then there are higher ecclesiastic ranks that uh, are empowered to wear different color robes, but we don't care about that. We don't do that. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for your talk. As you were talking about the different uh, ways to receive an ordination, I got clarity that I think sometimes people think the priest path is a better path, and it's something about something external to themselves. But I wanted to say that my experience watching people make the discernment, and get your comment on it, people making the discernment about how to express their practice. It's, it's very much an internal decision. It's very much an internal kind of response to one's draw to the practice. And for some people, that's uh, more ritualistic and ceremonial and complete bodily practice. And for other people, it's less that and more in the world. That's a, that, uh, even that's saying too much. But it's more an internal call than something about one's external practice, and how one wants to spend one's time. I could say more, but I bet yeah. lots of people could comment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's right, and it's not um, it's just not cut and dry. It's not clear at all. Uh, and uh, for me, that discernment also the the critical part, at least in in my experience and in in my way of thinking, has to do with uh, your relationship, the relationship that you have with your teacher. Um, You know, when Somehow I got the idea. When, I, when the idea of becoming ordained arose, my feeling was, okay, I'm, I'm creating a, a relationship of a more immediate and intensive accountability to my teacher. And that there's a mutual kind of recognition. So particularly during the training part, and then theoretically, and I've talked to Sojin, and I've talked to Bernie Glassman and others. They feel like, well, oh, when you give trans- Dharma transmissions, like then the student is uh, is on their own, but but not necessarily, not if you stay around.
0: Agreed. I just say. I, I, if you're going to, if one chooses to be priest ordained, that is a commitment to their teacher and accountability. Right. But I think the actual decision or desire to be a priest comes from a different place. Right. Myself.
1: I, I Yeah, and I agree. And there's a part of me that thinks, I'm a priest? <laughs> <laughs> is, is this what it's come to? <laughs> uh but I also really love my life, you know. Uh I don't think I would have stayed here for all these years if that hadn't been the path. I think some of us feel that being a priest is remedial work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Between 1988 and 98, for those 10 years, was there a sudden moment or transition that made you
0: feel ready for Dharma Transmission, or was it more gradual?
1: You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I can say that, you know, because I have my ambitions. And my aspirations. And at the point at which, I think it was in 95, Sojin asked Meili and I to begin the process of transmission, I was, I, I was not thinking about it at all. Uh, in fact, I was studying with, I was beginning to study with other teachers and uh, I just wanted to deepen my practice and so it caught me really by surprise, uh, and uh, then we spent a couple of years uh, studying different texts and, and and the process. So no, I wasn't I wasn't actually thinking about it. Uh, it was still it was not a very common thing. At that point, it's much more common now. There are many more. People with Dharma transmission, uh, so I was, I was really surprised. Um, but I will say, I think you know, and uh, my understanding is that he invited us because this is how he saw. The lineage of this temple continuing, uh, and he he felt that Meili and I could would be solid and capable of doing that, even if we didn't, even if I didn't feel that at the moment. Uh, and uh, so, you know, he did that I think to ensure the continuation of the practice and. Uh, I think that's that's been the case with a lot of the transmissions that sojourn's done that tension Roji has done uh, you know it's about again, if you' look at it in the family sense it's about making sure that the family is taken care of. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you for um, this wonderful talk. How many hours will,
1: Sarah, will mm. Carol and Hannah be doing each day? We're going to negotiate. <laughs> <laughs> I try to imagine their lives and
0: the kind of work that the whole community must be needed to help with. You know, I assume there's organization Tremendous
1: organization for this. It, it's, it's pretty organized, yeah. Lori has been the Gisha, and she's been doing it, and Vicki Austin, who's kind of the resident San Francisco Zen Center expert on Dharma transmission, is going to come and help. Uh, and people will help perhaps ring bells. But it's also, there's three people, so uh, they can ring bells for each other These things, and I don't want them, you know. I don't want them to hurt themselves. Uh, So, you know, when when we did it, it's like it was like 140 bows. I could do 140 bows then. You know, I was when I had transmission, I was 50. I can't do it now.
0: So if we're involved, if we come for the monthly bodhisattva ceremony, it's, we get a sense of what they're doing a little bit with all those bows and chanting.
1: It's similar, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a. Um, that's part of what's done, actually. There's, it's part of uh, the bodhisattva ceremony. Is is resembles the the. Denkai precept uh, transmission part of the ceremony. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean really, Bodhisattva ceremony is like we've got kind of one major ceremony in this in this tradition. You get married, you do the precepts. You die, you do the precepts. You know, you have lay ordination, you do the precepts. You have transmission, you do the precepts. It's like precepts are are at the heart of uh, for practice.
0: So, is a suggestion for new people to do abdominal strengthening exercises, <laughs> so they can do this.
1: Um, I guess. I mean, I think the suggestion was just, yeah, you should stretch. You should you should build your body, and uh, you can do that by doing bows. You know. I mean, in some traditions, like uh, in the Korean tradition, they do 108 bows before they start the day. That's the first thing they do, and they do them fast. You know, so uh, we're lucky we don't have to do that.
0: Yeah, so it's no. definitely a body practice. It's a body
1: right? practice. You may have noticed that, right?
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Yeah, we have a couple more minutes. And anyone out there in Zoom land? Hoson. when I first came to Zen and to this temple, you know, I had faith in these brown robes, in the esoteric, explicit meaning of them, that mm-hmm. represented the realization of enlightenment, the realization of no self. And in my story. I may have been misled a little bit by that faith, or naive in that faith, but I'd still say that is the explicit, straightforward meaning of these roles. There's two dimensions of the transmission. Uh, There's there's the esoteric and the exoteric. The esoteric is uh, kind of akin to what people may have done or hear about uh, in the Tibetan tradition—empowerments—so you're empowered to to do certain kinds of rituals. The exoteric uh, is where I don't see that it's confined to people. I mean, what what hopefully you see is that people wearing brown robe or any robe. Uh, including Su are people of integrity that should be the case and if there's a lapse in that uh, one should be able to address that with the person and say what you see and they should be able to respond uh, not react respond and Make corrections in themselves. Uh, That's, so I think that's the exoteric. Uh, But yes, I think that the conferring of of the brown rope or the conferring of the green rock suit uh, is to say this is a reliable trustworthy person with a good character, which is not to say that others aren't. one more if there is. I see the striker's gone up. Well, if not, I hope that you'll just just help uh, cheer Carol and Hannah along in the course of this week. And they're going to give the talk next Saturday. and so they'll they'll get to say some of what the experience was, for them, and that'll be, I think that'll be quite wonderful and unusual to have two people talking. But uh, they've gone through this experience. To go through it, you're so lucky to have each other. You know, uh, I just uh, I was so lucky to go through it with with Maylee Scott. Uh, you know, it just was. Uh, just you really uh, just so aligned with each other and that's a that's a lifetime relationship. So thank you very much. Enjoy the day. And uh, we'll see you here in the course of
0: the week.